0: I mean, I think I think we can all just kind of have this conversation. So all
1: right.
0: we'll see. We'll see how we'll see how much we know. Or well, you know, if it later. sucks, we'll
1: do something else later. That's yeah,
0: fine. Exactly. It'll be fine. <laughs>
1: Welcome to From All Points, the monthly podcast from the Episcopal Cafe exploring the themes of the life of faith.
0: I am Amy Hain. Our panel today are two of our regular panelists, John White. Hello. (laughs) And Cleola Jaton. Hello. Charles sadly is not able to join us today, but it was his idea for this topic. Today we're talking about the Gospel of John and its complicated relationship to Judaism. This is a relevant topic this time of year as we begin Lent. Our first Sunday of Lent, we have a reading from Matthew, but on the second, third, fourth, and fifth Sundays in Lent, we get John, the Gospel of John. On Palm Sunday, we're back to Matthew, and then during Holy Week, it's back and forth between John and Matthew. Over the years, several people have pointed out this complicated relationship But this year, it seems like there's a lot more coming across my social media feed about the perceived anti-Semitism in the Gospel of John in a couple of different ways. And I wonder if it's because of heightened awareness of anti-Semitism attacks. In 2018, we had the Tree of Life uh, shooting in Pittsburgh There was a car attack at a Los Angeles synagogue also in 2018 and 2019. There was um, an attack at a synagogue in California and then the Jersey City Kosher Grocery Market and then also the stabbing at the Hanukkah party that happened right at the end of 2019. So I wonder if those are driving this a little bit more this year. Have you guys seen more coming across your plates and across your desks
1: I confess I have not
0: um
1: I mean no more than usual I mean there's always kind of I see that from time to time uh, a concern um I think there are there is growing anti-semitism um in our society um and so I would not be surprised if some people are noticing these things more or if the the effort to bring these things to people's attentions is getting more traction um on this issue just because of rising anti-Semitism it's kind of rising hate uh generally speaking um in the culture there seems to be something that has opened up the gates to uh to the the worst voices amongst us um who feel freer to espouse their vile views um, than maybe they have in the past so I would not be surprised at that I mean it's something that I've I've been aware of for a long time and we try to, ameliorate as best we can without you know dropping the gospel of John altogether but it's it's troubling uh, I remember in seminary we were we had a priest who was speaking to us and he he was talking about church planting he'd been a church planter and he would planted a church but their church had started in a synagogue and he's like we just we just couldn't do the like the good friday readings I just I couldn't do them there you know um, and so that church evolved to where it bought property from the synagogue, and so the synagogue and the parish church were literally next to each other. And so they were trying to be more creative about how they approached it. And so I've been thinking about it, I guess, since that time, because probably like most people, I never really paid that close attention, I guess, um, to the potential subtext of the messages and that people could take it into today, uh, today's world and, and use that as an excuse for hatred
0: clayola how about you
2: well i think uh, i have a i have noticed um certainly have noticed you know the crimes and i have noticed some dialogue about it it replicates dialogue that i remember amy you made to as well from school when we were getting our scripture studies and and the perception and i think fact that john reads in the english as anti-semitic and our professors then clarified that that gospel was referring to when it said jews it was referring to the leadership of that jewish uh, culture and not to individual jews i think it raises questions for us in general with scripture about the ways we're able to ignore biases that are built into scripture because of our entitled positions i don't wake up every morning having to deal with the biases found in holy script because it's not against me except as a woman and but you know i don't um i think it's an important thing to engage in every Era, I. What do you know about the original Greek? Anybody?
1: Well, I'm no expert in Koine Greek for sure. I'm, but the word is "Yudioi," and um, and I think there's a lot of debate whether we should read that as translated as Jewish or Jew or Judean, because um, generally speaking, in Koine Greek, from what I recall, is that when referring to different peoples. Right. Even in scriptures, it refers to sort of like, you know, place of origin, right? Galatian, for example. You know, Galatia is a place. Uh, and that <laughs> Udayoi, it kind of has the same, it occupies the same place. And so it would be more appropriate to talk about people of Judea rather than people who are adherents of Jewish religion. Um, so that's one of the things we do. I do is we I usually refer to the Judeans rather than the Jews. Well, that's I think historically it's important to kind of conceptualize that, like, everybody in the New Testament is a member of, you know, Israel. <laughs> they're, yeah. all, they're all Udyoi, <laughs> uh, right? <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> but it's important, like, when we think about when John's gospel is being written in the end of the first century, the, the conflict between the growing influx of Gentile believers and the smaller group of the original Jewish believers, there's, there's conflict there. You know this is like a new innovation and change. i think I think one of the ways we can read like revelations is it's a complaint about the Gentile Church, because all those churches that it mentions in the beginning, they're all Gentile Christian communities who don't really have that connection to the traditions of Israel. Not to mention that in the in the wake of the destruction of the temple, the only two sects of of Judaism that survived were the Pharisees and the Christians. And one of the reasons the Pharisees get it all the time is because that's the group that they're in competition with. Um, right. And so it's you know this arises at the time before Christianity is really a separately defined thing. And so they're both arguing over what's the best way forward to be God's people without a temple. Um, and the Pharisees answer. have one answer, which becomes right. And so the Pharisees have one answer, which becomes modern Judaism. And we have another answer, which becomes Christianity, and the two start to diverge. But at the time these Gospels are written, that question is still in play, and that conflict is still pretty active. Um, and we don't have that context. And so when we read it, we look at the world we live in now, where Judaism and Christianity are very different. But that's not the context. It'd be more like an argument between you know, evangelicals and mainline Protestants. You know, we're um, all Christians. Okay. Who's the um, right kind of Christian? I mean, that's kind of the operative debate.
2: Is it? So are you asserting that John, the Gospel of John, out of the four Gospels, was written by a non-Jewish or edited by that's, a non-Jewish editor and the others don't raise that question because they are Jewish? Well, I
1: think if you, you, can, you can kind of see, because they're not written, you know, they're written kind of in a sequence. And I think mm-hmm. if you look at, um, say, the example of the trial of, of Jesus, right, and they're freeing Barnabas. And if you start with Mark, which is probably the earliest written one, all it says is the crowd. The crowd cried Barnabas.
2: Right. By the time it really- to
1: John, it says the Jews.
2: Right. And Matthew
1: and Luke are kind of in between. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the conflict be- is getting worse and worse and worse as the first century unfolds. Um, it, and it's at its height at the time, probably when John's written at the very end of the first century or early second century. And so John is the one that really, really hammers on you know the Jews. Um, right. still see it a little bit in, in Mark and Luke, but in or sorry in Matthew and Luke, but in Mark, you don't really come across that at all because it's still, it's so early that it, it, there's really not a big Gentile Christian mm-hmm. church that's feels threatening yet, I think.
2: So I think the question that occurs to me, given that history, which is helpful, because um, let me go on a sidetrack here for a second. Because whenever somebody brings up the anti-Semitism in, in the Gospel of John... My initial gut level response is, yeah, duh, we all know that. And we need to mitigate that as we understand, John, certainly none of us is buying into that. Right. So, okay. It seems like an old argument until you say that, because when you say that, then that brings to mind for me, what are the current like arguments? for Christianity that we're dealing with now. We're not dealing with a a church that's wedded to anti-Semitism, but that conflict, what's our conflict that's like that?
1: Well, the most obvious parallel in the Episcopal Church is the around the issues of LGBT inclusion. Does Christianity make space for the inclusion of of people who are, you know, not heterosexual or not. Um, And there are lots of Episcopalians. Amy experienced this firsthand. Probably you did too, Clayla, right? In in Fort Worth where a whole bunch of people decided that there's no space for that in Christianity, where there were other people who said, yes, there is. And, you know, if we were writing books that were scripture now, I mean, those biases and that conflict would be reflected in that. Um, Even though we all claim to follow Jesus, you know, in the same way that the Pharisees and the followers of Jesus all claim to be followers of God and seeking to live out God's promise as best they can, um, you know, that bias is still in there. But imagine if, you know, a book about LGBT Christians was scriptural and that that bias would be perpetuated for generations and generations and generations. I mean, that scripture does do that. In fact, it has some biases against gay people that that are in there and so that I think the struggle for us is to say okay so what what is scripture right is it something that like has context or is it something that is is without context and so we can take every word of it literally now probably as basically as most of us don't go down I that path. Path. how do we decide what we're going to take literally and what we're not I mean that's the big yeah. question. All Christians. I had it. so
2: much fun uh, with a fella who showed up Sunday. Came he came uh, uh, right before we did communion and um, sat in the back. And he, as he left, he said, uh, "Who is that person?" And pointed at our deacon. And I said, "That is." the reverend diane moore she is our deacon i'm the priest and he said but there aren't any women pastors and i turned around to diane and i said diane did you know we're imaginary like (laughs) we i could do anything right now because we're imaginary but his premise was the scripture that says a, a minister will have be the husband of one wife from the king james and I said, and I said, well, what does the original Greek word say? And he said, I don't care about the Greek. This is the word of God. Uh, you know, this, this is the, that Greek stuff wasn't right. inspired word of God. This is. And I said, and you do get that we wrote that, right? <laughs> That's ours. We, we wrote that for good or ill. So that you can't go to one version of scripture. We all get that now. When you say that about literal Bible, it just triggers that amusement that people, I know there are still people who are working with that idea. But um, as Professor Abraham said in school, I don't find that intellectually compelling, which was his way of saying, that's just stupid. <laughs> right. <laughs> I heard him say that many times. <laughs> Nobody's doing that. <laughs> but but you know, I think another area that we um that also we are articulating as an area for of growth for us is white entitlement because the people who are having the discussion about LGBTQ ai plus in the episcopal church are largely white people the episcopal church is largely white people and so we need to name that as an area where our church needs to be conflicted if not in conflict we need to be conflicted about that fact
0: and along that line it seems like a lot of the people who are a lot, not all, um, but some of the people that are perpetrating the violence against the synagogues in the United States right now, at least for the last few years, have seemed like they are part of white supremacist groups. Mm-hmm. Which I think that takes us down another another path that may not be uh, fruitful for us to necessarily visit today, but just to keep in mind that when I, you know, when I look out across trinity and fort worth we have very significant beloved members that are people of color but they're small in number compared to the white people that are there and present um Mm -hmm. so i wonder if it's enough to as these as these different scriptures come up in the next few weeks and as we read them is it enough to address it from the pulpit um, we had an article on Episcopal Cafe from Frank Heron that suggested that, especially on Good Friday, we might want to put some sort of disclaimer in our passion narrative uh, handouts that we do where everybody does the reading of the passion, you know, that maybe there's a, a slip of paper that you push in there that says the church repents of any acts done on behalf of the anti-Semitism that seems to be portrayed in this gospel. I mean, he had a, he had a long statement that we, that we put up on Episcopal cafe last Saturday talking about that. Um, hmm. What do you think? What's enough for us to address it this year? Oh, well, I, hmm. I, I, like the idea of
1: sort of um, a repentance, right? And I think that can be weaved into the, the prayers of the people Mm -hmm. In some sort of meaningful way. I felt maybe Uh, throughout Lent as a special prayer. As part of the prayers of the people. I don't know that.
2: these things Seriously. Do what? What's that? How would you do that, John? Say that again, Clayola? uh, How would, say more about, before you go. How would you, tell me some about how you would put that in the prayers of the people. I'm just curious about that.
1: Well, I, you know, as one of the, you know, there are the six things that we're supposed to pray for, according to the prayer book, you know, the church and the leaders of the nations and the concerns of the local community and the and the welfare of the world and the and the sick and the dying. Um I think we can include something like uh, we repent of uh, of of those who read these. These gospels as as a license to hate. I mean, you know, you can come up with much more flour yeah. than that than I'm going to come up with here on a podcast right off the top of my head. But, um, but I think you can just yeah. work that in, and then you you know the normal you know Lord in your mercy, hear our prayer, or whatever you do. I would so, say that um, in my parishes uh, where I have served, I, I I don't do the everybody reads a part thing, um, partly because I think that it's difficult to. If there's like a single voice, then I think that mitigates the the people taking on the role that sounds like, you know, we're the Jews and we hate you kind of thing. Yeah. I also think that's really not an accurate representation of what the gospel says, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but I think what we really need is, which is something we need throughout the church, generally speaking, is we need a robust catechization of our membership who are largely not as familiar with their Bible. They haven't really dug into it in any meaningful way. Um, for many people and since maybe they were children or if at all because I think Bible study is the place where you can really get into this in a way that you that the the preaching is about the proclamation of the good news but if there's like a bunch of caveats and qualifications to that um, mm. I think that takes away from the message um, and so I, I don't know that that's necessarily the best way to do it but I, I think it'd be worthwhile of, of nod. or you could go like crazy and just use a totally different reading. What? <laughs> just saying.
2: <laughs> Where the liturgy police will not works? arrest
1: you if you do something different.
2: If
0: the you want to use Mark try?
1: instead of John, go for it. That's what I say.
0: <laughs> the other thought I had about just kind of addressing it in the liturgy itself is um you could certainly make a through line of the things done on our behalf from the EOW confession Um yeah. and pull in some of some of the things that people feel like they've done on behalf of the church that the church pushes back and says, please don't do that in our name. Yeah. Well, I mean, if
1: you're doing like the the great litany, you could certainly add in something there. Right. Uh, you know, I think there's, or oh, if you yeah. use, I think there's some opportunity. I think there's lots of places we could work it in liturgically where it yeah. makes sense. Um, rather than like, you know, a public service announcement in the midst of, by the way, we really don't think this is really nice and so we don't believe it, right? I mean that kinda takes away from the whole purpose of the
0: Well, and we're gonna hear it so many Sundays in a row. I mean, we're gonna have second, third, fourth, fifth. I mean, if you had to if we put that paragraph, that disclaimer paragraph for all four of those Sundays, I feel like eventually it would fall on deaf ears or become white noise. Mm-hmm. And I, realized, yeah, so uh, I, I think somehow in a prayerful way to approach it would right.
1: be an effective way. And also thinking about how we translate that word Jew uh, right, yeah. that shows up in yeah. the NRSV and whether that's really the best translation of that or not.
2: Right?
0: Yeah. I love your Juda- Judaism. Ju- the Judeans? Judean. Yeah, because uh, yeah, I remember it the same way you do, Cleo, about us being taught that, um, and I don't remember which class it was, but talking about it's the kind of the Jewish leadership that's being held up as don't be like that versus your next door neighbor.
2: Yeah. So yeah. I, thought
0: you that was- know,
2: I, I also think um, there's probably a little bit of room in sermons to say this was the conflict. Then we hear these readings and well, part of what we're hearing is their conflict. Here's the conflict now uh, you know, in sermon. Right. You, probably well, I,
1: you know, I'd say like the way we were taught to do sermons in my seminary, um, is, you know, we were supposed to look for the, the trouble in the text. Right. Right. Which is to uh-huh. say the, the things that people are struggling with. Right. Uh-huh. And kind of, you know, what's the parallel trouble that we're experiencing today? And then what's, what's, you know, what's the good news in the text? Um, and, and how do we expect that good news today? Um, and and something like this, I think that's an easy parallel, right? This is the conflict that's been embedded in the scripture, but but it's really a an interhuman conflict. I don't think God wants that kind of division. We see those right. kind of divisions in our church life today. How do we work to transcend them in a way that our ancestors were not able to do?
2: Right. right?
1: How can we do better? I mean, because you know, like uh, I don't know if you ever, I went to a Lutheran seminary. Um, and Martin Luther was like as anti-Semitic as it gets. I mean, the guy was terrible.
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: and we, we had to go through a lot of that stuff. And so we had to talk about this a lot because, of course, you know, Lutheranism rises in Germany. Germany has a particular connection with anti-Semitism. And so it was something that was we really talked about a lot, uh, especially as our Lutheran seminary is, was in the a town where 70% of the residents were Jewish. So it, you know, it was an operative conversation about how, how, does, how do we proclaim this good news in a way that you know, doesn't denigrate our neighbors, our, our literal neighbors. Um, and so you know, I think that there are ways to approach this that can be helped. But I think you have to think about it in the context in which you live um, and communicate in a way that the people listening can understand.
0: Well, right. even in our own prayer book, I know a lot of people that will not pray the prayer of St. Chrysostom because of his anti-Semitic views on, in so many of his writings. They just refuse to to use that prayer. Well, um, I
1: still like the prayer, but I, I don't think I have to, like, own the beliefs of the person right. who wrote it. Right. right. So person. for our
2: listeners, Amy, can uh, can you uh, say a little of that prayer so they know which <laughs> one you're
0: talking about? <laughs> um. Sure. Let me pull up my Google (laughs) real quick and just pull that up while I'm talking.
1: I'll I'll give it to you right here. Here we go. This is the prayer of St. Chrysostom from morning prayer. There you go. Almighty God, you have given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common common supplication supplication to you. you. And you have promised through your well-beloved son that when two or three are gathered together in his name, you will be in the midst of them. Fulfill now, O Lord, our desires and petitions, as may be best for us, granting us in this world knowledge of your truth, and in the age to come, life everlasting.
0: Amen. 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 Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, once you got it started, I could say it right along with you. <laughs> I'm that way
1: with the, the College for Purity, so don't worry about it.
0: Right, right. I have the worst time memorizing some of that stuff. I have just a couple of resources for us as we begin to um, wrap up our conversation. One of which is that um, a lot of the Nazi camps in Germany were shut down uh, 75 years ago in 1945. So as those camps were shut down, we'll see the anniversaries. We just had the anniversary of Auschwitz, um, January 27th. So just... A couple of weeks ago that one passed by and we'll see others um the other thing to offer up is and dunlap is a person who works at showing up for racial justice and if you don't know that website it's a fantastic website that has really good resources on it for people with little melanin in their skin who want to figure out how to do racial justice work um Showing up for racial justice has all sorts of interesting resources, but one of the things that they are going to offer is a webcast and it'll be Monday, the 24th, February 24th. I don't know how quick this podcast will get up, but on Monday 24th at eight Eastern time, they're doing a podcast or a webcast resisting, um, resisting anti-Judaism in John And she will specifically go through the readings for Second Sunday of Lent, Third Sunday of Lent, Fourth Sunday of Lent, and Fifth Sunday of Lent. So for those Sundays, she's specifically going to be addressing John and anti-Semitism in those readings for those particular Sundays. So that might be an interesting resource, even if you can't participate in the webcast as it happens, if you sign up for it. They'll send you the recorded webcast later so you can refer back to it.
2: That's cool. So for Lent, I am doing a racial justice activity every day. That's going to be my Lenten thing. That sounds good. It's going to be dumb stuff that I should have already done, like join the NAACP and make sure I'm still ACLU. But other things i will be reading, so this will be a really cool thing to get during that. Trying to do something new, learn something new, hear something new. We, I live in an area uh, where Native American concerns are also um, very vibrant, and so I'll be trying to connect with some of the Native tribe here. We're at, we're going to add the um ceo they call him a ceo not a chief to uh of the native tribe to our leaders so that when we're naming our bishop and me and michael curry will also be naming him as one of the leaders of the area so
0: this will be really cool thank you for that tip amy
2: all right sounds good
0: i went ahead and signed up for it just so that i could even if i can't be present Next Monday night, I could refer back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things I really like on the Surge website, S-U-R-G, is they have a whole set of one of their resources is characteristics of white supremacy culture. And that's a really interesting exercise. We use it on RevGals in our board retreats. Um, we used it where we just put it up on a big piece of paper on the wall to say these are the characteristics of white supremacy culture and when we catch ourselves being caught by perfectionism or a sense of urgency or defensiveness or quantity over quality and there's 13 things on this list when we catch ourselves being caught up in these things we're going we're going to try to notice and slow down and make sure we make space for for our for people of color, and realize that these are things that white supremacy culture tends to push forward that pushes out people of color. So it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting resource to have to refer to occasionally. Does sound good? Cool. Thank you for that. Oh yeah, you're welcome. All right. So any other comments, questions, arguments, complaints before we move on to closing out our conversation today?
1: I am sorry Charles missed out. I'm sure he would have had some good things to say on this.
0: I agree. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I want to thank you both for being here today and especially thank our listeners. You can follow us and get notifications of new episodes at soundcloud.com slash points. And you can find new episodes on the first Saturday of each month at EpiscopalCafe.com. So I never did say who I am. I am Amy Haney. I'm an Episcopal priest in the Diocese of Fort Worth, and I work as as the Associate Rector at Trinity Episcopal Church in Fort Worth across the street from TCU. John, will you tell us who you are and where you are? Sure. I'm John White. I'm the Rector of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Camillus, New York. And Clayola, will you tell us who you are and where you are? Yes, I am Clayola Jaton and I am rector of Saint Luke's also, but this one is in Squim, Washington. So thank you both for your for your thoughtful discussion. May we all, right. all thank start you, lids Amy. in a good way.
1: <laughs> thank you, Amy and Clayola. Talk to you guys yep. later.
0: See you, you later. Bye. Bye.
1: This has been a production of the Episcopal Cafe.